So Doug, before we get into the, the sort of dynamics and maybe pros and cons of where automation is taking us, um, maybe I, we could get your perspective on the state of automation today. You know, what do you mean as you refer to automation and, and how, how do you see it as sort of influencing uh, society at large? Gosh, I mean, in some ways, it's a really big question because you can Indeed. see automation in tons of different places. Um, I guess for me, I have to look at automation you know, within the context of the business landscape itself. So that most of the automation you're going to see funded is going to be funded by people or companies looking to save money, mm-hmm. you know, looking to extract more value out of the world and convert it into their share price. You know, that's automation covers a real wide spectrum of human activities, you know, from, uh, you know, automating a simple process on your computer to automating the stock market to, uh, you know, uh, automatic behaviors. Uh, you know, I think for the most part, what we're talking about here is kind of, you know, robots and programs and computers, you know, automating human tasks and, and labor. And for the most part, our automation priorities are, you know, influenced by our market priorities. You know, people who have enough money and time to develop automated processes are usually working for, you know, one corporation or the other that's looking to uh, extract more value in less time from people or places or things. So uh, I've been a little disappointed that, um, that there's a kind of a reversal going on where uh, I'm seeing people, humans, doing more and more automated tasks and machines getting to do more and more interesting ones. Hmm. You know, I see people mindlessly, uh, you know, rechecking their email, you know, swiping down on their iPhones because, you know, kids went to Stanford and figured out what's the most almost a kind of Pavlovian uh, effect. What's the most, you know, what's the, the best behavior modification that we can put into an interface to induce people to check it again and again and again. Yeah. You know what? What email sound? What uh, uh, Twitter refresh? You know what? What can we do to make these devices more and more compelling in order to get more and more predictable, repeatable behavior out of people? Uh-huh, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the the Facebook interface is there to generate. Uh, very predictable, repeated behaviors, which then Facebook can sell to its marketers. Yep. You know, it's uh, if your newsfeed, um, you know, if your newsfeed is filled with algorithmically created ads, those ads are based on your statistical profile. Those ads are based on getting you to behave and perform more consistently with your targeted demographic group. You know, if they know that. 80% of the people in a certain group are, you know, might go on a diet next week. They want to turn that into 90% by, you know, by filling your newsfeed with, oh, you know, fat messages or suggestions that you're not, that you're not eating right. You know, or I look at, say, uh, uh, Amazon Turks, you know, who do the most repetitive, boring, automated tasks it's the people for, you know, two cents a pop, finding the number in a frame, you know, doing the 
the tasks that in some sense are too boring for your computers to do, <laughs> they give it to people to do. Uh, so when I look at automation, whether it's you know people becoming more automated or the more automated processes of you know robot, robots building cars and automated assembly lines, I don't generally see uh, you know companies trying to make life better for people. What I see is companies sort of reducing short-term expenditure are often at the expense of long-term innovation and research and development, you know, in order to really just convert uh, uh, real-time value into into share price hmm. without thinking about what are the long-term impacts of this strategy of automation. Yeah, and, and I suppose, you know, in, in a, you know, in, in the economic world that we live in, um, there's obviously some, some pretty reasonably uh, strong incentives to limit some of that, you know, waste time if need be and, and automate what can be automated and, and whatnot. But I, I see the potential contention that at times maybe this is working against, um, you know, well-being and what kind of creative experiences might might be a conduit there too. And, uh, uh, and, and, well, it's, and yeah, it's a matter of looking, what are we programming for? You know, so if you look at where, you know, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or any of the, uh, uh, you know, stock market investment yeah. companies are investing their money, it's into algorithms that can do high-speed trading and can sort of uh, uh, predict various market trends based on stochastics or can uh, uh, end-run um, human traders. And now we're up to 80 or 90 percent of stock market transactions are algorithmic trades. They're yep. automated trades. And that's fine, but what are these? What are these engines? What are these bots programmed to do? They're programmed to uh, exploit, you know, infinitesimal uh, time gaps uh, or whatever the case errors and uh, uh, um, arbitrage opportunities in the market. They're not there to, you know, promote the distribution of capital to businesses that need it, right? So the original function of the stock market, which was to allocate capital, is now being changed because a majority of the transactions are automated. And it's not that automation is the, is the problem. It's that automation, uh, the, the, the priorities of the particular automation that you're using, the way in which your automation has been optimized, can end up having extreme effects on the underlying system that you're automating. Yeah, um, and and maybe you know take you to a place that you didn't intend on going in the first place. You know, it, it seems as though... Um, it, it's it's an interesting consideration um, about you know how how can those kind of dynamics be changed? I mean, you, you'd almost think, shucks, you know, whoever you put in the in the helm of Morgan Stanley would probably be doing something somewhat similar. I I, I would uh, I would have a difficult time saying you know explicitly without meeting the guy that they're inherently bad people either. But I oh, think yeah. that what, what you're bringing up is that um, it's you know it's the, the overall dynamic is. For one particular aim, rather than for a kind of aggregate um, well-being, how how could industries, you know, given our economic conditions and given given the the um, you know the capitalist world that, that we live in, um, how how could automation maybe be leveraged with an explicit eye on a more broad aggregate well-being, which it seems as though um, you know you're pointing towards? How could the dynamics at play today ever be changed? Well, I think it's actually pretty easy. I mean, you have to look at the uh, the sort of preeminence of capital as 
a, a programming error that's actually pretty recent. You know, it really, um, this, this latest boom is really just since Eisenhower. You know, when they began to look at digital technology as a way of saving the capital markets, they weren't automating in the way that a smart, uh, uh, a smart society would automate. A smart society looks back at economics and realizes, oh, the factors of production that we could automate, you know, there really there's three of them. There's land, labor, and capital. You know, those have always been understood as the three things you need uh, to, to create a business. The, the people working, the place where you do it, and then the investment money. The problem is only the investment money, only the capital can kind of scale infinitely. It's just numbers. So, you know, computers like that, digital programs like that, oh, it's just numbers. You know, digital programs and land sometimes seem incompatible because – Land is so finite. You can't yeah. keep processing it. You no, can't you do can't. an iterative loop with land. It just goes away, which is what we're seeing. I mean, that's the destruction of the environment. Yep. You know, it's like if you if you increase a marketplace a thousandfold, but it's still occurring on the same finite piece of land, you end up in trouble there too. You know, you've yep. got to get a, a lot of Monsanto engineering in there to figure out how to, you know, squeeze more nutrients out of, uh, out of dead topsoil. You know, the land is, is finite. But uh, if businesses start to look, really, if they start to look at things more the way a family business looks at things rather than a short-term kind of uh, flip, uh, corporate flip, which is the way most startups look at things, it's not a matter of company worth enough so we can flip it or get acquired by someone else and then yeah. leave you know rather a family businesses tend to look at the long term so they're not just thinking about how can i flip this company in the next six months and get an aqua hire or uh, an ipo they're thinking how can we sustain this business into future generations and so the approach that family businesses take is much more towards uh, maintaining the market environment that their business needs to keep going. That means keeping your customers alive and keeping your suppliers alive. It means actually, um, and this is so, it's so digital. Um, it means that wealth ends up distributed rather than extracted. You know, and that's the difference between industrial age automation and digital age automation. Industrial age automation is extraction. It was it was oil wells and uh, steam engines yep, and yep. colonial businesses yep. that were extracting value from land and labor. A digital economy, like digital technology, is going to be more distributed and circulatory. So you're going to start, if you want to talk in programming terms, you're going to optimize not for the uh, not for the growth of capital, but for the velocity of money. How do we get it circulating more and better so that you can actually earn the same dollar two, three, four times? Now, do you think uh, that it's possible to uh, get businesses thinking in such a direction on their own without legislation encouraging it? In other words, maybe there's businesses already today, Douglas, that, that you see as potentially leveraging automation in the direction that um, you know that you believe maybe is a little bit more conducive to, to aggregate well-being and and a longer-term sustainable um, future. Is there anyone doing it today, or is it is it possible to bend businesses to think in that way, leadership and businesses to think in that way? Is it is it almost a, a lost cause of public companies because of the quarterly assessments there? Um, lend me your thoughts on that. 
Well, I mean, it's hardest for public companies because of their fiduciary responsibility yep. to their shareholders. Yep. You know, so they have the toughest. Uh, they have the toughest time. I mean, some of them, in order to be able to do things like this, they'll go private or they'll change their corporate structure, become yeah. a, a you know a benefit corporation or a, a multiple purpose corporation. There's a lot of other structures there that let them focus on things other than short-term share price without being put in jail for that yeah. or getting sued for that. Um, so that, you know, that that's certainly a way to do it. I mean, it's also a matter, you know, uh, people are realizing that a lot of the things we're doing don't need to scale up. You know, that a lot of things do tend to work better at a local level. You know, if you want to do uh, uh, if you want to eat healthy food, you know, you end up eating local food or joining community supported agriculture group. It just works better. And ultimately it is more efficient even than big agri because of the, uh, you know, rotating the crops on the soil and not using roads and not needing oil to ship, uh, uh, to ship or truck yep, yep. Uh, vegetables from one side of the country to the other. You know, so a lot of stuff is happening in a more scaled way. The stuff that's not, it's pretty easy um, I think the easiest flip is for some of these larger platform monopolies, places like Uber or Airbnb that are really um, taking over and disrupting entire marketplaces. If they were to let their workers or participants share in the profits of the company, it would change the dynamic. So even if Uber drivers are basically doing the research and development for a company that's going to one day use automated cars and not have jobs for them at all, rather than simply doing R&D for free, essentially, you know, driving themselves out of business, if Uber had set aside even just 10% of the company for its drivers, you know, and they would get a share of the company based on how many, uh, you know, how many rides they gave or how many miles they've driven for the company, it's really simple. Um, then when Uber sells itself or has an IPO for 30 nine billion dollars um the drivers actually are participating in that and then they're not going to be upset when their job gets automated they're not going to be bummed out if it's a robot driving their car instead of them because they are participating in the future profits of that company that they helped to build and that's really all it takes is if you're going to use people um and, and, you know, and basically use those people to help teach the machines that are going to one day replace them. Yeah. All you have to do is let them participate. Otherwise, how are we ever going to get to the place where we can just sit and drink iced tea where the robots till the fields? We can't because once the robots are tilling your field, you're not going to be allowed to have the iced tea. You're not going to be allowed to keep your house because you don't have um, an income anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, huh, and and it, it seems as though – so what we're speaking to here is – putting the business's eye on some degree of social justice, I suppose we could call it, or maybe fairness, we could call it. I'm not sure how we would word this, but um, essentially building that into the model so that uh, if we know we're moving into a place where, where you know, automation is, uh, is going to be sort of stepping in in a big way, is there a way that we can do that without making automation and uh, a temporary or even longer term kind of detriment to those involved? Is there a way to make automation um, something conducive? I suppose there is. There is. Yeah. And it's really as simple as having the, the people who work with you and for you is to stop thinking of them as employees. You know, employees is sort of, uh, you know, wage, you know, earning wages 
over time. You know, this hourly wage culture really began with the industrial age. Yep. People used to make stuff and sell stuff. They were craftspeople. They yep. owned what they did. You know, if you were only paying people for their time, if that's the only way we know to make money, and we have machines now making it so we don't have to work as much time, um, that's not going to work. On the other hand, if workers are participants, if they are co-owners and stakeholders in the whole enterprise, then we could actually see a time where, well, if we all co-own a company that's making stuff by itself without us having to work, we can still get to live on our houses and eat food. Got it. And, and you know, I, I think, I suppose what it would take, I, I'm of the belief, as it sounds as though you are, that... Um, you know, within our lifetimes here, we will see some relatively grand shifts, uh, which exactly I can't say, but in, in the labor market with, with the advent of automation. And I think no matter how you slice it, it makes sense to think about what the alternatives are here and what the longer term future is here, because there probably are ways to kind of just keep your head down and then end up somewhere you don't want to be. Um, and, and I think I think it's it's fruitful to, to sift through uh, many of these thoughts. And Douglas, I know we're right about on time, but I sincerely appreciate you being able to to share your perspective with us here on Tech Emergence. So thank you. Oh gosh, and uh, thanks for what you're doing. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence podcast. And thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers, and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.